Okay, so today we're going to talk about the poetry of the Bible. So how many of you are excited about poetry? Oh, well, that's more than I thought. Okay, so uh, poetry is like one of those things that uh, like small children tend to like, English majors like, and everyone else is like, oh, okay. So, but reading the Bible as a literary work does place emphasis, right, on that experiential, immersive quality of reading, and that is particularly important with poetry. Poetry is designed um, to be an artistic engagement with the reader. It is inviting the reader always, like all, all poetry really is inviting the reader into an experience, into a moment. So it's not a narrative, it's not a story always, sometimes it can be, but it is something a little bit different than the narratives we've been talking about, and a lot of people don't like that. So most people are like, okay, do we want to watch a film or read a novel? You guys want to go to like some poetry reading? You're like, let's go to the movie, right? Or read the book or whatever. Like it's that's more appealing. There's definitely a piece to that, um, and that's somewhat personal. But I, I think there's a lot of reasons for that. There are a few extra challenges with poetry, so that's where I wanted to start. Uh, one is a huge challenge for any kind of poetry that is being read in translation. Is that it's hard to translate a novel. It's almost impossible to translate poetry and keep it in its original form because the language is not the same. So culturally, there's problems that things don't translate, right? Just because like they don't mean the same thing. But like literally, the words don't fit the same way. So if you read some Russian poetry or something, you're like, this is kind of clunky. Well, because you're not reading it in Russian. It might be clunky in Russian, too, depending on the form. But it, that's a problem for us because we're not reading in mostly Hebrew. There's some poetic pieces to the like the New Testament, but heavily it's Old Testament. So really, we're not. The language sounds different. So things aren't going to rhyme if they originally rhymed. Rhyme isn't actually always a feature of poetry anyway. But it doesn't feel poetic to us because we're not the the language, the music, the rhythm is all messed up. So that's like a big issue. And there are a couple of ways people try to deal with this. And so um, when we translate. We translate for a variety of reasons, which is why there's like so many translations of the Bible. So the one that we use mostly in church, the NASB, is a word-for-word literal translation. Its main goal is to keep each word the way it is. There are thought-for-thought translations. So you're probably familiar with like the NIV. That's more of a thought-for-thought. So like not quite sentence-by-sentence, but a little bit more like the same length. And then there are complete paraphrases like the message, who are not, they're kind of idea for idea, and they're not worried about the length really remaining the same for the most part. So those are all choices that the translator has to make. They're trying to get the spirit of what the original has, but what they're focusing on can be different. Is it the wording? Is it the idea? Is it the size of it? Is it the language? Is it the emphasis? Does it translate? They have a lot of questions. Um, But there are more poetic versions of the Bible. So the NASV, no offense, is not the most poetic of the versions, right? <laughs> yes, right? That's the, not the goal of it, right? It's a little clunky in places, right? So how many of you, when you were a kid, you had to read from the New King James Version? You might have called it the King James Version, but it wasn't. Like after the 80s, it's always the New King James. So, and you probably memorized more verses in that, and you probably remember them better, because the New King James is based on, of course, the King James, or the Authorized is actually what we're supposed to call it, the Authorized Version. Um, but there, it was meant to be poetic. There was an intention of those translators to keep the beauty of the text. They saw the sacred text 
as an artistic, like tapestry, like all these things. Let's say that they built cathedrals, right? Like they built these beautiful churches. The word of God is a beautiful thing, and they try to keep that. Um, some of it's old-fashioned language because the book is old, and not the Bible, but the translation is old. But it's also their intent was to keep it poetic, and poetry is harder to read than straight-up prose, than just like a informational sign. So. And that would be, I think, a good suggestion to go back. It's also what makes the New King James easier to memorize. Um, but poetry in general is easier to memorize. So we're going to do Psalm 23 today. I'm probably not going to read it like straight through because how many of you have Psalm 23 memorized? How many of you have six other consecutive verses of the Bible memorized? Yeah, right? Not as many. You're like, maybe. Right? You worked really hard to get a whole chapter somewhere, but like... It's a big ch- The Lord's Prayer would be the other one, which has its own, po- it's also a poetic piece, I would argue. So it was easier to get those units, right? One is probably you were just trained to do it as a kid, and kids have good memories, right? But also the poetry makes it easier to remember than if you just picked a section. Who's got six verses on Levitical priesthood? <laughs> no, no, right? You know, uh, maybe some of our, our Calvary Chapel starters have six verses of Levitical priesthood memorized, but nobody else. So, the poetic aspect, things are poetic, but there's also straight up the poetry. So the poetry is what I want to look at with the Psalms. They're easier to memorize. Probably, actually, most of you don't have a ton of Psalms memorized, but you have snippets of a lot of Psalms if you were to dig through. Um, But how we translate makes that easier or harder. So some of what we'll talk about today just depends on which version you're reading. And ideally, you should just learn Hebrew and read it in Hebrew, <laughs> and it would be the nicest. But that is probably a farther goal for many of us than what we can start with. Um, so what I passed out, actually, the one handout that has the two versions of Psalm 23 on it, uh, one of them, I think the one on the left, is from Philip Sidney. So Mary and Philip Sidney are early modern English poets, um, and that doesn't mean like contemporary, like modern, like Shakespeare. So I like, go right back. Um, and they write the Psalms. They did quite a bit of psalm writing and poetry. And their goal was to make it sound like an English poem. So it's not a direct translation. Um, they did translate. Then they used a variety of forms. But their rewording and their reorganizing of things was meant to make it feel poemy. That was like, they're like, we want to get the spirit of the poem of it. Not necessarily the Hebraic poetry, but an English poetry. And so if you look at that one, what are some things you notice about it that make it seem very poetic on the left-hand side? Yeah, there's like some nice repetition. Some repetition of sounds. Like there's like rhyming words. We're like, ooh, right? All the lines are like the same unit. The stanzas are all, is very, um, very early modern English poetry, very much like if you've seen a Shakespearean sonnet. It probably sounds Shakespearean to you because the language is similar with some estuses and things like that, right? So that to us probably feels more like a poem, and that's intentional on the part of the writers, okay? The one on the left-hand side, just as a side note, is um, by Robert Alter, and he has a translation of the Hebrew portion of the Bible, the Old Testament, that is meant to, like, maintain the literary aspects and it has a whole like section like huge amounts of commentary on like why that is and so you'll notice there's some different word choices it looks more like a contemporary poem in some ways to us with like different interesting line choices and things like that so the the psalms are a poem those are just two versions of psalm 23 um if we look in your 
your Bible that you have, right? The Psalms do normally look kind of poemy to us because in like every translation that I've seen, maybe not in some paraphrases, but they try to at least make them in line units look like a poem, right? And that's the first thing that as English readers, we say that's a poem is because the lines are wonky. Um, and so I'd say most translators try to keep some element. They don't completely just go like for a word-for-word sentence version, but the length of that varies. So considering the translation may, might change things or it might be a place to look for, not to pick and choose your theology from a different translation, but to look for, okay, I understand that the concepts from the NASB, I understand the words. If I want to look for the poetic, I can find a more poetic translation and see maybe how people are emphasizing that. So... That's challenge number one, is that we're not reading it in the original language. And challenge two is that it's a poem. So most of us don't feel really comfortable with reading poems. They make us nervous. Um, except for Angela, right? No, sorry. But uh, we, how many of you have like a bad experience from like high school English with poetry? Right? And the teacher like asks a question. You're like, I know he or she knows the answer. And they're just fishing and we're wrong. Whatever we say is not going to be the right answer. We've kind of trained our American education system has trained poetry into this like magic puzzle that needs to be solved. And that's like its goal. It's not the goal of most poets or most poems. Um, So I would suggest we try to reject that a little bit. Uh, understanding structure and poetic language can help us make additional connections and patterns when you get a little bit of skill at it. It makes it more enjoyable, right, to see those, right? Just like um, a good chef likes a good meal from somebody else and they pick it apart. Oh, it's so interesting. Oh, they did that combination. They see things that you're like, it tasted nice, you know, <laughs> worked for me, right? The mechanic enjoys a well put together, you know, engine. So we, we do that. But Also, you can just enjoy them to enjoy them. So that's a piece I'll I'll bring back is that the first purpose of most art is not to be picked apart, but to just be experienced, right? To be, you go to the art museum, and we're better with pictures, I think. You go to the art museum, who who stands there and like picks apart the painting for like 20 minutes? Aside from the docent, okay? So, okay, right? You're like, oh, you see what the light's doing? And you're like, oh, you're like, this is pretty. Or you're like, this one's cool, I don't get it. But it's cool, right? If it's the Museum of Contemporary Art, you're maybe like, hmm, mm-hmm, yeah, yeah, you just nod a lot, right? But you can go and just experience it without being any kind of expert. And that really is the artist's goal. They want people to see it and experience it. And then they're hoping maybe if you stare at it long enough, you'll notice some interesting things, right? And so I would suggest the same for your reading of poetry, is that instead of viewing it as, oh, I have to figure out what this means, you experience it. And the more times you experience it, you will notice, as Randy said earlier, they're different things, right? We see different pieces to it. So what makes a poem a poem? I am going to read Psalm 23. It's in my notes. Okay, so this is Psalm 23. This is from the NASB, okay, because what my husband has here. So the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The other handout I have for you, 
actually has it in the New King James, which is probably what I should have read just there. But if you want to look at that, it has a little bit of a different translation. And there's some side questions that I'll kind of go through some of them. We won't go through all of the side questions. That's the one with the blue on the side. Any extras of those? So, what makes, anyone can answer this question, what makes a poem a poem? Either from your own experience or from just listening to that passage versus maybe some of the other things we read earlier. What makes it a poem? Like the structure? Yeah. Right? So it's got the line structure, right? Which is not required for all poetry, especially contemporary poetry, but it's definitely like the big signature hallmark of like if you look at the paper, like that's a poem, right? That signals. So there tends to be a lot of symbolism, and in a, a more specific way, a lot of concrete images that we know have a little bit deeper meaning, right? They're giving us a symbol. So um, that concrete piece, and that's true of, of poetry from across the ages, and we'll talk about that actually quite a bit. Uh, we do like them to rhyme often, so this is not going to rhyme most of the time, partly because of translation and partly because it's not as important in Hebrew to rhyme in the poetry. And it's like Japanese uh, haikus, right? Everyone's written a haiku. They don't rhyme. They're not supposed to rhyme. If they rhyme, people would think that you were weird. Um, it's just not a, an element they see as poetic. So we don't have that. But the, the structure, the line arrangement is distinct, um, there is a heavy focus on image-rich language. Okay, not always symbolic. Symbolic has some, a lot of different parts too. But we can at least say there's always these images, right? And then a couple of other pieces, right? Which we will see here is that they tend to have an emphasis in parallelism. So these kind of like repeated ideas or contrasting ideas, line by line. That's why we have the lines. And sometimes syllable and meter. Those have to do with the actual words chosen. So those tend to, if they were there in the original Hebrew, they don't translate over because it has to do with how long the words are and how we say them. So that means that we're going to focus mostly on structure and images because those are the ones that are going to translate for us. Okay. So there are several poetic books of the Bible. Um, does anyone want to name some? Psalms. Proverbs. Song of Solomon. Ecclesiastes is heavily poetic, but it has a lot of prose narrative, so we'll put it on a side. It's my second list. It's Lamentations um, is very is a, a book of poetry. Uh, but Job, Ecclesiastes, Isaiah, Joel, a lot of the prophets have heavy poetic elements, so a lot of this could be translated over to, to use in those portions as well. And there are also some songs that are strewn throughout the Old Testament, um, like the Song of Deborah, the Song of Moses. They're kind of in the middle of a story. Someone will like, break out in song. It's like a Tolkien novel. Um, and so those are really, because they've been written down, and that's how we receive them, they're, they're, po- they're narrative poems, they're poems that tell stories. Okay. So some things to think about as we look at these books, again, parallelism and contrast, that's probably the most common it's the most prevalent you're going to see this back and forth back and forth back and forth um it's also not the deepest in some ways so that's about all i'm going to say about it today is just looking for that structure of what are the ideas moving back and forth but thinking in images and that really is the invitation to experience the moment with the with the poet 
with the writer, um, which is to say, I'm giving you this picture. Picture's worth a thousand words, right? A poem's worth a thousand stories. So I want you just to, to sit and imagine it and think of it and like meditate on this image and then it's going to reveal something about an abstract truth. So poetry um, from the Bible, from contemporary writers, wherever you're looking, tends to heavily use the concrete, the physical, the real to say something about or to help people really experience something that is not physical, not tangible, but probably not any less real, right? But something we can't quite see or touch or feel. Because no eye has seen, no ears heard, right? These are things that are not physical for us, but they're real. And I would say that's actually, if you read like bad poetry or poetry from beginners, it's often very much, I love you with so much love, lovey, lovey, love, love, love. And it's so wonderful with all the love, right? There's, it's, there's no actually concrete images. They just talk about the idea. But when we look a little bit more at like experienced poems, they talk about love, but they don't use the word all the time. They give us these physical pieces that make us understand something about it. And that's often what we see in the Psalms. The Psalms are definitely not meant to be a puzzle. Um, They're going to tell us straight up what the point is, and then they're going to explain it to us with these images. So that works out nicely. Um, All of this experience is engaging the reader. So we have to imagine. We connect our own experiences with what we think that physical item is. What is a green pasture? Right? Okay, let's think about a green pasture. Um, Sometimes... So there's a little, like, caveat here. Um, We have to be careful because, ideally, when the poet is giving us this image, it's what the poet also imagines. And that may look very familiar to what we would imagine, you know, a mother loving its child. That still holds true. You think of a woman with a baby and it's beautiful, right? That's still good. That image still works. I don't know the last time you, like, laid down lines in the desert, you know? Like, it's not, you don't have a good mental image for that. What you think of as a stream or a river may not look like the stream or the river that the the author's thinking of. So sometimes we can misread because we bring too much of our own personal idea without understanding what the author would have intended, or at least what they would have seen, right? So, I mean, we might think of... If we think of a a mule or something, we have an idea about what that means because we just see some wild burrows on the side of the street. But they're using that as like an important part of their daily livelihood. It means something different. So the poem, in any case, is not about those things. So Psalm 23 is not about a shepherd. It's not about green pastures. It's not about still waters. It's not about sheep. There's actually no sheep mentioned. It's just kind of implied sheep anyway. But none of those things are actually what the poem is about. Those images are a means to tell us what the poem is about. And that's often, I would say, a common mistake that students make. Oh, the theme of, you know, The Hobbit is magic. No, like, it's not. Even if there is magic, it's doing something. It's telling something. The, the theme of, you know, Romeo and Juliet sword fighting. No, those are moments that tell us something about what's happening. So the poem is not about what the poem says. And that's why students hate it. And that's probably why you hit it. you're like, it's about a shepherd. It says a shepherd. I understood that. That part made sense, right? And that's, that's where you just have to roll with your English teacher for a little bit. So it's about the shepherd is supposed to tell us something else, right? But that comes to the heavy use of simile and metaphor. So parallelism, images, 
and the images turn into similes and metaphors. So there's your high school English like reminder class right there. Simile and metaphors are comparisons where you say something is what it isn't, um, but a simile says like or as. You know the it it's raining cats and dogs is like a metaphor. There's no cats and dogs. It's just a lot of them, a lot of rain, um, and this simile would be like. He's tall like a tree, right? So it's the same business. There's really no distinction between simile and metaphor for meaning. But they're just that kind of symbolic stand-in. And that's what you were mentioning, Brian. You're like, you know, there's these images, and you know it's not really about the shepherd. That's a trick, right? So you know that's a symbol for something else, or at least an image of something else. Okay, so um, we want to look for that. And again, be careful that our image as much as it can, can look like what we think the original author would have imagined as well. They're inviting us into their moment, so we want to try to experience what they meant. Um, And sometimes there's value in experiencing it. I think God made the word to be eternal, and so there's still pieces for us that if we don't know what, you know, David would have seen as a shepherd, we still get the idea of a shepherd and a sheep. Like, there's enough there that we can get things out of it without tons of, like, extra research. The extra research just adds, like, bonus information, I would suggest, right? Because God God made it with that kind of flexibility, I would suggest there. So, there's other figurative language. We could do that for, like, months and months and months. So, if you are interested, you can find a nice poetry handbook, and it will explain all the different other poetic ones. And specifically, one that looks at Hebraic poetry would be the most useful. Like, what are the things that the author would actually be probably using intentionally? Um, So, we have that. But the combined effect of good poetry should be to draw the reader in, to encourage the reader to imagine and meditate on the images, and to ponder the beautiful language that's used as well. So, one of the things I'd like to point out, really, with the poetry is that... It's not just a utilitarian text. We often approach the Bible like as a utilitarian text. This thing that I have to learn, all the rules. Like it's a textbook, right? And I think probably people use that metaphor. It's a textbook for life. Well, I mean, yeah, like Moby Dick is a textbook for life. You know, like it, it is. Like it is. Like it's trying to give you a principle. It's trying to tell you things. And sometimes it does straight up, you know, and several of the books of law tell you, do this, don't do that. It's supposed to give us information. Uh, but God didn't choose to give us a textbook or a legal code only, right? It's this beautifully written piece. And so something to think about, uh, again, depending on your translation, it may feel more or less utilitarian, which is a place where multiple translations can be useful. Um, But it's okay to just read one psalm. It's just six verses. Just read it again. Read it a couple times. Um, If you got a book of poetry, you can read through the poems in a couple hours and not remember anything from any poem. You didn't experience the poems. It's okay to just take one and just read it a bunch, right? And to sit with it. And so while a lot of the narrative, the the nature of narrative is to push us to find out what happens. It's moving us, which is why it's easier to read, right? We can get through it a lot faster. The poems are a little bit better on repeat, right? And it takes some time and to not feel pressure just to read through all of them, which is hard for me because as someone who does like to read, I'm like, just like, I kind of can read more than half a page. That seems like an embarrassing investment for the day, right? But I should probably read it. You can read it more than one time, right? You can go over it. You can spend the same amount of time on it, but not have like this end goal of finishing Psalms in 10 minutes, you know? And if you did, go back and listen to it again for another 10 minutes. Read it again so that repetition is really important. So, 
back to the poetry. That's my spiel. I give it to my students, too, about loving poetry, and particularly biblical poetry. But the majority of what we think of as poetry is lyrical poetry. And that's actually most of the poetry in the Bible is lyrical poetry as well, just as a percentage. So lyrical poetry is lyrical like lyrics to a song, right? So that's what we think of if you ask like, kids. of like, oh, poems are like songs without music, right? So lyrical poetry is heavy on musicality, which is just its rhythm. Um, it's kind of like rhymy word choice will lead to that sometimes. Um, it tends to be often very emotional. David has a lot of feelings, guys. If you did not think there were feelings in the Bible, you've got to read this section, right? David has strong feelings. Um, and there's a couple of other psalmists in there as well, so I don't want to discount them. Right, but they are emotional. They tend to be short, except for like Psalm 118. Okay, the rest of them are short. Um, they're personal and they're very reflective, right? And so that's why they ask us to reflect with them. And that would be most of the biblical poetry. For biblical poetry, it tends to have a three-part structure. So you can see this in almost all of the pieces in Psalms 119. You would see it repeated in the longer piece. We repeat it multiple times, but it starts with a statement of the theme. So again. That Psalms are not a puzzle. So what is the theme of Psalm 23? What's the main point? The Lord is a shepherd. Okay, we don't know what it means, but that sounds nice, right? So the Lord's a shepherd. That's the goal. If you want to know what that means or what that looks like, you keep reading. Because the second thing it's going to do is to develop that theme. If you look at Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord and all it contains. Big mystery, right? Like, okay, it's going to like say stuff pretty, pretty straightforward. So, we state this theme, we develop the theme, and then at the end there's a resolution, which actually our early modern writers like to like, nice turn at the end, so it really works for the, the Sydney sonnets. Um, but at the end we see that, so we have the Lord as a shepherd, then we explain what the shepherding bit is all about in verse 2 through 5, and then what does that all add up to? Well, if that's the case, then surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So that basic structure is repeated through most, if not all, of the lyric poetry of the Bible. Okay, and all of those things can be done in a variety of ways, which is why it doesn't feel like a formula. The lengths don't have to be the same. So if you're going to do a close reading of Psalm 23, I'm trying to decide if I have time for this, guys. Okay, so we can do it. Uh, Psalm 23 is a close reading, partially. Um, Elsie, can you hand me your paper? Yeah, I'm just going to use it as a visual. So what I have here is kind of like how I would probably do a little bit of a discussion guide. Um, and if you look through these kind of like comments on the side, which are mostly questions, because part of the point of a poem is not to have it explained to you or to find the right answer, uh, but to read the poem and consider it, right? And so that's really the question. The purpose is not to have the right answer. Um, so there are a couple of side note comments and then a couple of things that are handed. So if we start in general, and this is straight, I'm going to, this next portion, I'm straight up stealing from Leland Riken. So this is his method for close reading a psalm, um, which is to start, and this is true of all good close reading, so you can do this with any kind of literary reading you do, is start with the large and work your way to the specific. So if it was a novel, you'd want to understand the basic point of the whole, like the basic plot. And then you look at specific scenes. For a poem, you read the whole thing. What are the bigger pieces of it? Okay, the theme. They give it to us in the Psalms, right? So that's nice. The Lord is a shepherd. That's our focus. That tells us where to look and how to kind of read the rest of it. Okay? Then we kind of look at how it's structured because structure is so important to poetry. So we can do that by looking at topical units. 
Well, what's before I start? What's the the gut reaction of how to structure the poem, like how to break it apart? If you look at a poem or the psalm, what's your gut reaction of how to like break it into chunks? Double space it, right? No, I mean most people are like, well, it's already broken into two spots right here. Don't you mean those two spots? I don't, uh, because that is interpretive on the part of the translators, right? And if you notice the the variants, the three I gave you in your NASB, they all break them into different chunks. Okay, so there's use. You could look at each of those breaks, and it would help you like see something different. See what the translators saw, right? I don't know how to see what David saw without going back to the original Hebrew, but we can look through. And you can just use your idea to say, okay, well, um, I like the way the New King James does it, which is that one, right? So we start off, well, the first part's all about God's the shepherd, and I'm a sheep. Let's talk about our sheep life, right? And then the valley of the shadow of death. That seems to take a turn. That's abrupt, right? So let's make that a separate section. And then there's like that nice little ending. So that seems a logical way. The other ways have their own logic. So looking at that can be insightful. Okay, we want to look for underlying, so the structure, are there underlying contrasts that help us organize? And in this case, the contrast in the middle is the big <coughs> pivot of the, the structure, right? Life is good. What about when life's not good? Oh, that's still okay? Okay, then we're, we're good to go at the end. So it's a three-part. They're not always three parts. So that's something you can kind of play with and like just play with different ways. What happens when I read these in this chunk what if I break here what if I break here how does it change my focus right as the reader okay so that would be something to consider Uh, look for how are we developing it so in this we have the Lord as a shepherd Um, some ways we can develop our repetition we don't see that as much in the Psalms we see that in his love endures forever right just keep saying if you've got that memorized you memorize like seven verses at least maybe 15 20 verses they're all his love endures forever it helps to get the middle parts too, but there's a whole bunch of those. You, know, you can check off a lot on your to-do list with his love endures forever, right? And there's a reason, because the Bible's trying to hit that message home pretty hard, right? You got what the poet said. It's not a mystery, right? So that's like a, re- a repetitive technique. Uh, listing is very common, and this one is closest to listing. So, well, what does it mean if God's a shepherd? Well, he does this kind of shepherd thing, this kind of shepherd thing, this kind of shepherd thing. Okay, so here's a list of qualities. Uh, we can use different associations or allusions. Um, we see this a lot, actually, with the shepherd. So I would just say the invoking of the shepherd image is done throughout the text. Um, we actually saw it a lot today in, in the song. At least two of those songs have a shepherd reference, right? We do it without thinking almost now um, in Christianese. The Lord is the good shepherd, right? We, like, sheep have gone astray. We could probably stand here for, like, 20 minutes just with sheep business, okay? Uh, but this particularly is insightful. This one is specified in the text. is a psalm of David, who is, of course, a shepherd, right? So he's just living close to home, like all good writers, writing what he knows, right? But also, he's a shepherd king, right? And so that creates an interesting parallel with Jesus, right? At the baguette, he's also play on in the song, so that he's a shepherd, we use that metaphor a lot, but a shepherd king. Those are not opposed ideas in the text. So that would be kind of an illusion. And the contrast, right? So again, that comes back. How are they building it? Um, I'm not going to do Proverbs today because of, of time, but the contrasting there is very big. So good idea, bad idea, good idea, bad idea. Good, you know, it's very clear. Or sometimes it's like, 
good idea, another good idea, another good idea, bad idea, bad idea. Bad. Like so, the list can go either in a extending way or a back and forth, and that's just a common thing to look for. I think that would be a useful tidbit. So. If we want to look next, we would identify the figures of speech and all those images, and um, and in each unit, which a unit can be a line, it can be a stanza, it can be a, a chunk of some kind. It could, in a really short poem, be the whole thing. Okay, but we have a couple here. I'm gonna do them real quick. But I asked more questions. So on your ride home back to Riverside, you can ask each other the questions in the car.、Uh, but we start with just a green pasture. So what do we associate? That's just an image. Everybody stop for. I'll give you thirty seconds to think about a green pasture. Just envision it in your mind. I'm going to make you sit here for thirty seconds too. Put some sheep in there if you want. A little brook. Okay, that's thirty seconds, right? When you're in love, you can look into someone's eyes for all eternity. But thirty seconds, right, is a long time. And so,、uh, but I would encourage you to slow down. So, what are some things that we associate when we have that image? What's attached to that image? Right, it's maybe it's large, right? It's calm. Seems peaceful. Yeah, we have like all these like positive. We have like most of this positive association, right? It's green. It's life giving. It's not like a dry, barren Californian hillside, right? It's maybe like a spring Californian hillside, right? Where it's green for five minutes, right? That's what we have here, right?、And、it's a pasture, so it's not like all woody and dark. It's, it's not a dark and stormy night situation, right? We probably put some sunshine in there and some happy frolicking sheep, right? So. That is all part of the author's intent. I said the green pasture. It, if you wanted to go, you could study some landscape. You can Google all kinds of cool images of like what what, what is really green pasture look like. You can find one, I'm sure. It, it pretty much is like a California green pasture. So that one you don't need to spend too long on. But we have all of that. So without telling us, God gives us. He provides for us in open spaces. He gives us peace and sleep and safety and comfort. That's all in the green pasture. You didn't have to say all those words. The picture is worth a thousand words, right? So the one, the two words give us the picture, and the picture gives us all the rest. And we could do the same thing with the still or the quiet waters. The rod and the staff—that gets a little trickier. That one takes a little bit more context. If you don't know anything about shepherd, shepherds, you're like like Rod Stewart. Like I don't know what a rod is. Like I, we don't have a context for that in our kind of corporate capitalistic lives. So. Um, I think even like a few years ago, Romney said the kids went out with some shepherds, and they're like, he's like, it opened my eyes to like what shepherds do. Like I don't know. So that's where that research can help build those Im- images in a powerful way. But even that, we're like, okay, at the very basic level, he tells us the rod and the staff comfort me. Okay, so at least that, right? Maybe God knew we need help with that one in the future, so he ex- self-explained, right? So the rest of it. We don't we don't have all the pieces, but if we sit through and look, and for some people that feels a little bit painful, I think. But if you're not trying to do it for the right answer, but you're just trying to do it for the experience, it's nice to sit and visualize some peaceful meadows or some, you know, if you want to be more dramatic. David's got that for you somewhere else. He's in the pit of despair somewhere. He's surrounded on by enemies on all sides. If you like, are feeling really imaginative, you got other places you can go. 
to find those images too. So I'm not going to go through the whole close reading. And I don't even on the page. At the end, I'm like, no, do it yourself, right? Because I'm a teacher. So I'm like, find the answer on your own. Um, but there are a few things, and what I do want to point out really quickly, and there's a couple places on there where the wording may make a big difference. Um, and that is one place where translation is tricky for us, is that we don't always get the whole context. The translators are trying to give us a word, but if they're trying to be more poetic, they may pick a word that's not the best fit because it feels nice, which is part of what the poem is supposed to do. So I'm not even I'm not judging them for that. It's just a different purpose. Um, and in this case, right, it's often, he restores my soul. Alter translates that as life, right? Because the word for soul is not how we always think of the soul as like this detached piece, right? It's this more holistic self, right? And we have all these different ways of what we, what David would have meant by that word versus how we read it. And Alter points out throughout the Psalms that the Psalms are physical and bodily, right? Which is very true, actually, of contemporary poetry. We like embodied poetry is a good catchphrase. So next time you want to, you know, impress someone without having to explain too much, just talk about your embodied poetry experience. And unless they are an English teacher, they'll be like, oh, that sounds really if not, they might ask you about it, and then you'll be in trouble, right? But uh, embodied poetry. And we tend to take things to a very, like, spiritual abstract place because of our kind of more Greco-Roman thinking. So there are some interesting places, I would suggest, for further study, or for at least pondering and considering what does it mean? Does it mean it make a difference if we read this as life or soul? What are the implications? Um, and just thinking about those things. So the takeaways, I really was... I timed myself to do 40, and it's, it's totally 40. I was going to try to go through Okay. Uh, you should read slowly and meditate upon poetic verses. Poetry requires deep breaths and time, which is also, I think, why my American students don't like it, right? They want to be done with this assignment, and you just can't do it quickly if you're going to do it right. Uh, we want to look at the theme and the overall meaning, which is normally pretty clear. I'd like to encourage you. I think that the overall theme and meaning is pretty clear. Then we look for those images and their abstract meanings, and we look for those that create those patterns throughout the Bible of this is a repeated image, a repeated meaning, or, you know, this is a poem, but it seems to kind of encapsulate this story, right? We can connect the, know, the, the poetry and the narratives. They, they work together. And ultimately, above all, you should enjoy reading them. So if you're not, because you're too worried about all the other things, just read one and enjoy it, and be interested in it, and then move to a different one, and do the same. So, questions? <laughs>